How are you? I'm doing well. Great, great to hear. You're welcome. I mean, people ask me this on a semi-regular basis. People must ask you too. How are you? And the I used answer to think it was a weird question, but no, invariably the same. Yeah, I try. I try to actually go for depending on the relationship with this person. I will ask, "How are you feeling today?" Which I think is a more specific question than "How are you?" How come you never asked me that? How are you feeling today, Eugene? I'm feeling great. How many cups of coffee did you have? Enough, and it was free coffee. Went to a co-working space. Wait, you were in a co-working space? Great room. Oh, people in other parts of the world are going to find that very strange. Yeah, yeah, it was alright. Sometimes you need that face-to-face time. All right. Let's get, get into it. Yes. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Megan, which is original storytelling at its purest through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners. But really, we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. If you like what you hear and want to help us keep going, you can support us on patreon.com slash Let's get into it. You want to start first or me? I can start. So this is a subject that you did pick. I know there are weeks where I don't pick from the list you offer. Hater. Kind of. I almost considered doing it this week again, but I did actually really like this one. So it's not really from an article, which is why I asked you where you got this from. I did see it through Dense Discovery. I see. I also subscribed to Dense Discovery, but didn't happen to click on this particular link. Did you look at the most recent one? No, I, you I also like, did not look at the most recent one. someone that is okay skipping newsletters. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, Are you I, not? I need to, if I'm going to start, Obsessive. I'm going to see the whole thing. Obsessive. Like there are times when I have 200 newsletters. If I let it go for like two or three days, there's like 200 newsletters that are unread. I'm like, oh. Just to, ditch them all in the trash at that point. I can't. FOMO of information. Okay. I mean, I feel like we should address that. I don't FOMO that. on events. I feel like we should address that. I have that. FOMO of information. You don't think that if a certain period of time has elapsed, you should just wipe the slate clean and be like, I'm moving on no. with my life. No. There are an endless stream of I've new gotten a little bit better, but at the same time, I'm, I also feel bad. Do you unsubscribe to newsletters? Predominantly, if I was added, you know, through spam. Right, 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 right. Like but you didn't sign up yourself. In general, like, I don't really unsubscribe. Eventually, you will reach a point where you cannot possibly read as much material as you're subscribed for. I'm more likely to unsubscribe from a major newsletter than, right. you know, someone that, that takes the time to Like the to Times create. or the Atlantic or something, like a yes. media publication. Yes. I mean, also, they send a lot, depending yes. on your settings. Okay. Actually, that's somewhat relevant to this conversation, because this subject is about this product called unloved and what it is is a marketplace for pre-owned tech subscriptions 
that's their own way of describing it. It doesn't really have to be text subscriptions, but I feel like they describe that for search reasons. And essentially, it's a marketplace where people can sell and buy anything that they've already subscribed to and aren't really using anymore. And mainly it's for annual subscriptions, because if you pay upfront for like an annual subscription, then you're locked in for the year. And even if you cancel, they're not going to refund you. Most products don't refund you for the time remaining. And so what Unloved does is you can offer and buy other people's annual subscriptions and they'll update the login information, the login details so that you can use it. So you're not like using someone else's email or password, of course. Yeah, this is their pitch, which I'll just read. Imagine the number of subscriptions you buy and don't use. We're building a marketplace for unloved subscriptions, paid in full subscriptions we don't really use anymore. We're still in beta and working it out, so expect a few bugs. Be aware. I'm pretty sure this is run by one person named Natish Rathi, who is a developer based on his product hunt description, built it really quick to fill his own personal need. Like he had annual subscriptions he wanted to offload, wasn't using anymore. And he put it up three weeks ago and it has, based off of his comments, I'd say like around a thousand users mm-hmm. or at least a thousand people who were willing to put their email in in order to see what's on offer. On offer, I put my email in so that I could get this information, by the way. On offer is Headspace for $45, valid until August this year, and it costs about $69 originally. So you're saving $14, which is about 20%? T- $25. Uh, $24. $24, yeah. which is about 20% off. Sure. Yep. Um, you get Masterclass for $100. Valid until September, and it usually costs $180. So you don't get the full year. So the math is a little bit beyond what I can calculate in my brain, but you figure it out. Yeah. You don't, you're three months shy of a year, but you're paying $100 versus $180. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and also, as an example, NordVPN, which this person decided to offer for $15, and it's usually $50 a year. It's valid until August. Pretty good deal if you were looking for that specific yeah. service. I have and questions already. the person already. De- determines the price. Got it. The seller determines the price. Okay. So technically they could put it up for a dollar. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, except that Unloved takes a cut. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. What, the thing that I, I find most interesting is like who commits to these things? I mean, all these, I'm not that sure. Like some of them might have trial programs that Your you go through. Your question is about annual subscriptions, aren't you? Yeah. I'm like, why? Because I was going to ask you. Yeah. Why would you commit? I mean, this is funny because I'm the guy that commits. If I'm going to commit, I'm going to commit. I mean, we just talked about your pathological need to read every newsletter. Yes. So, yeah. If I'm going to commit to something, I want to commit to it. Right. And it's also like I think about it. I'm like, well, if you're going to drop $69 on something for an annual, wouldn't you have spent maybe two or three months on a monthly before committing? That's my first question. My second question is, at scale, what happens? Like, for example, if there suddenly is 5,000 Headspace memberships, obviously the price comes down. Yeah. And that almost defeats the purpose. And then... Okay. So a couple different thoughts. One, I want to talk about that whole fact of like, who is committing to these annual subscriptions and then letting them go. One potential answer is that they got the annual subscription on sale. So maybe the annual sub- 
I'm not saying that this was smart necessarily, but let's say that they did a trial for a week and then they got a newsletter from the service that said, hey, if you subscribe now for one year, we'll give you a three month discount. And they were like, that sounds pretty good to me. And then they did. Fair, okay. fair. I can I see that. how that happens. Secondly, I, want, I didn't put this in the examples, but you know how you were saying I was kind of sad that people didn't commit? This one's the saddest one. There is a service called Wani Kani on offer, which is a service that teaches you Japanese and it costs $200, but apparently it's valid until 2099. It costs $299 for a lifetime plan. Mm -hmm. So I wonder so much, this is like kind of, you know, those Craigslist misconnections kind of deal. I wonder so much about this person who wanted to learn Japanese enough to pay $300 for a lifetime plan. And now doesn't want it. But because they've learned Japanese, That's their proficiency like the, is. That is the most optimistic possible answer. I, I, this is really fascinating to me because it, it, I mean, we're, we're now entering a phase of digital consumerism where SaaS will be the next sort of like frontier for a lot of businesses, right? Like everyone's yeah. trying to build yep, SaaS yep, yep. into their business. So it's like there's a lot of underlying mechanisms and psychology behind it. Yeah. I mean, in my notes, I wrote, I think this is where things were going to go eventually because SaaS is a product and all products have a resale market. Mm -hmm. That's just what happens. You know, like it's so common with physical items. Why would it not eventually happen with digital items? I do think this is OK. You, you know how the second part of the comment you had was about what happens when you have 5000 headspace subscriptions on offer. This all seems slightly illegal to me. Oh, yeah, yeah. This seems to broach. TNC for like terms and conditions. Yes, totally. And they're not big enough to have had anyone necessarily make that comment yet, or like they don't really have coverage by TechCrunch, et cetera, talking about this product. But I definitely feel like if I went into the masterclass headspace TNC, it says you cannot resell your subscription. Yeah. I also could not find any similar products. Which, on one hand, might make you think, oh, they found a completely empty area. On the other hand, makes me think this is going to get shut down. Yeah. I mean, I think I like the way that it's positioned, though. Yeah. I mean, I like the idea of reuse, right? Even if it's digital. Yeah, yes. that's a cool that's a cool idea because yeah. it's that's always been the issue with digital goods. Like when I buy a book on my Kindle, I can't share it. And this in some ways is like me being able to pass it on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I like that concept of being able to share digital goods because we can share physical goods. I can give you food and kitchenware and clothing and stuff like that. How come I can't give you my digital items yeah. in the same way? And I know it's not like recycling in the same sense, but that's what it, that's the mentality yeah. that it feels like. It's to just me. that digital goods have very low marginal cost. Yeah. You know what I mean, I mean, it's like how back when I was in college, me and my classmates used to all share ripped Adobe services mm -hmm. with each other. And like if one person found a key, essentially, back in the day when you bought like CS3 or CS4, like as a specific version, and they found a set of keys that worked, then you would share it with all of your friends. Mm -hmm. Because it was like 
this is this is my wealth that I can give to you. That it is still useful. boggles my mind how much of the streetwear industry was built off of like pirated Adobe. If you really think about it, <laughs> like pre CC. Yeah, 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 yeah. I kind of miss those days in a weird way, but like I think it's that nostalgia for being able to share tools. This is somewhat similar, even though these services I described are not necessarily tools, like none of the ones here are like Grammarly or Adobe. So they're a little bit more on the leisure entertainment side mm-hmm. of things, but they could be tools. Yeah. Wouldn't it be great if creatives could share their creative tools to one another? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, one more note I had, which is like, I really did try to Google you know, resale subscription market, black market for tech subscriptions. I, I really did try. And the only thing that came up was that there is an existing black market for streaming subscriptions. So like Netflix and Disney Plus mm. and HBO Max, which is apparently a huge problem. Millions of dollars problem. I, I do have a question. Do you think the person that's selling a yearly membership is going to change their habits where they realize, hey, maybe I won't get locked into yearly things anymore. And the next time I have the option between a monthly and a yearly, maybe I'll just spend a few more dollars up front to see if I really want it before committing to a yearly. Because that's something I've done. I used to be of the mindset of, ah, just get it yearly, right? I'll use it. But then soon I've realized that not everything translates to that. Unless there's a really big savings. What I'm trying to say is that... Yeah, I'm trying to think if, you know, this person is interesting because this person is clearly not you or me because I I cannot really recall any annual subscription I've made other than the purchase of my website domain, which is on a yearly renewal basis. But that was an easy decision. I'm not ever going to give up shariespoon.com. Yeah, yeah. Other than that, like, even when I was paying for my own billing like invoice systems it was always monthly because i don't know for me i never encountered like huge annual deals either so i did i was not incentivized in that way i wonder if any of these tech services would actually find a way to incorporate sharing legitimately or passing on subscriptions legitimately my sense is no because it benefits them. To, like, okay, masterclass, right? Someone buys an annual subscription and then doesn't want to watch it anymore. It obviously benefits masterclass more that this person can't pass on their subscription because then someone else will buy a new one. Yeah. But then maybe in terms of reputation, it's enough of a boost. What I did think about is other avenues of SaaS pricing. So mm-hmm. maybe it's like a baseline because that's the one thing is like time spent hasn't really encroached into the SaaS space. So masterclass so would be an true. example yeah. where you would need to get the base level of actually, let me take that back where I have seen time-based pricing is for transcription platforms and services. Yeah. Cause it's like, Hey, if you transcribe a hundred minutes a month versus a thousand minutes, obviously two different pricing Yep. Mechanisms, yep, yep, yep. Even though it's probably marginal, but what happens if entertainment and consumption of, of things that have a time 
around it could also be done that way. So maybe yeah. I was thinking like, if there's no upside, then it's, if you can't generate more revenue, then it's hard for you to, to incentivize sharing. Yes. However, let's use gaming, right? Let's say Fortnite, right? Whatever. Yeah. Something that like, is there a family plan? There isn't, but imagine if you were charged or some, something happened by virtue of how much time spent, mm-hmm. whether it's reward or cost associated mm-hmm, with it. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, what's funny is that, you know, how like people joke that tech just reinvents existing things. So what you reminded me of is mobile plans, which are also time-based. Oh, yes. Yeah. Back in the day when people actually made phone calls and sent text messages, you picked your plan based off of how many minutes you thought you were going to talk on the phone and how many texts you need. Now it's just by data, right? Most people pick based off of do they need 5 gigs, 8 gigs, 16 mm-hmm. gigs, et cetera. And that's also why I asked about the family plan thing because mobile plans really promote family plans, but SaaS doesn't really at least not right now, except yeah. for Netflix, yeah, which is like number of concurrent um, watchers. I wonder what would happen if you gave people two options, uh, just a flat rate versus a play as you go. I feel like people are not good enough at doing the math on themselves. Yeah. I don't know. I don't want to, it would take so much self-analysis to figure out which one is like economically better for you. Yeah. But I, I, yeah, I definitely think there's going to be more inventive or innovative pricing. I, this is something that uh, it's a concept people have dabbled with, but it's charging, you know, instead of paying for a subscription, it's like you get charged by the minute, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Of like content. Well, I'm also thinking about. Actually, there is something like <laughs> kind of bad, but <sighs> peep shows like those are. <laughs> Charged by the by the minute. Oh my goodness! I only remember that because when I was a kid, like we used to drive through Chinatown and they used to have these peep shows in Edmonton, and it was always trying to sell people on being the cheapest. But anyways, that's like a an interesting like way of looking at. It. But anyways, regardless of how consumption, there has to be like a psychological reason why time based consumption pricing isn't the de facto. Mm, I mean. My gut feeling wants to say that it wouldn't benefit companies. Like yeah. that's that's always instinctually what I would say. I cannot remember. I want to say that it's Amazon Web Services, but that doesn't seem right. But I'm going to say this anyway. I think it's that where they do bill you on usage and they just automatically bump you up and down based off of your usage. Mm-hmm. But I could be wrong. It might not be Amazon Web Services. But I know there's an existing large. Well, that kind of makes sense because if you need more servers, yeah. then they just and bump they you just up. organically do it. Like you don't have to go in and yeah, change like scale it up, scale because down. Because for like web services, you would need it to be able to just yep. handle it when you need it. Yeah. So I think it is. You, I agree with you. I think that is the exciting part of seeing how pricing offerings would change. I would also be interested to see if marketplaces like this continue to you know, press forwards, despite I'm sure the many companies that would discourage it. Or if there was some more like, you know, communal bartering system, maybe people do that on Reddit already, you know, where they're like, Hey, I'm not really using Adobe cloud anymore, but I have it for the year. Does anyone want to take it off of me? Yeah. That's it for me. Cool. Let's move on. Tell me what you got. 
My topic this week is jutsing, a made-up word. Well, no, it's sorry. It's an acronym word. Yeah, it's an acronym word. Jutsing, the key to creativity. So this is a piece that appeared in Farnham Street, which is a publication that I guess it's the, the higher level approach. And maybe this is not exactly in alignment with how they would describe themselves. But Farnham Street is this site that I think helps you develop frameworks around uh, solving challenging problems. It sounds very conceptual, but it's more, it's something that a lot of, I think, CEOs and whatnot will look like. Not to say like I'm falling into that, but my friend (laughs) Jordana put me on it and I I quite like it because it's just like people from different walks of life. They have a cool podcast that speaks with people outside my realm, right? Mm. That I would never stumble across. But this piece talks about the creative process. And I find it really interesting because depending on who you talk to, people often look at creativity as this mysterious thing. I've I've probably described it exactly in that capacity before, but it's this thing that, oh, you're so creative or whatever. And the reality is that there is a framework around being creative, Mm. right? And, you know, one thing, one thing you hear a lot is think outside of the box. And when I ask you that, Shreese, what is, what's your immediate reaction to that? I mean, it's a cliche, but I also think it's a cliche for good reason. Can you elaborate on that? I think that, yes, the phrase itself, when I hear it, is kind of corny. And I'm not sure that I would ever say that to someone. Do you agree with it? But conceptually, I agree with it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Hmm. I just wouldn't say it in that way. But I think at its core, it means to try and think differently from the way you usually think. Which is fair. I guess it, yeah. I, this piece will go into sort of the middle ground of that. Yeah. I right? mean, I, yeah, I wouldn't say it in that way, like think outside the box. But if I abstractly consider it to be approach things from a different angle. Then I like I that agree. one more than yeah. think outside of the box. I mean, that's what I would say yeah. to someone. Actually, yeah. like yeah. verbatim. Yeah. You want to tell us the, more about jutsing? Yeah. You so you told people what jutes. I'm going to get to it. There's okay. there's a piece within uh, the article that I found really interesting. It's a quote by G.K. Chesterton. Art is limitation. The essence of every picture is the frame. If you draw a giraffe, you must draw him with a long neck. If in your bold, creative way, you hold yourself free to draw a giraffe with a short neck, you will really find that you are not free to draw a giraffe. So. There are many successful examples of people who have established a repeatable process towards air quotes creativity. And what is this process? And they kind of, they don't necessarily speak about creative agencies or whatnot, but more so they describe the creative process as three key steps. Number one, gain a deep understanding of a particular system and its rules. Number two, step outside of that system and look for something surprising that subverts its rules. And number three, Use what you find as a basis for making something new and creative. Yeah, I agree with this. Yeah. And philosopher Daniel C. Dennett called this jutsing in his book, Intuition Pumps and Other Tools for Thinking, which, follow along, it's based off of Douglas Hofstadter's jumping out of the system. So jutsing, so what that means is that creativity requires restriction and a system to adhere to. Then this is a quote. Limitations are essential because they give us a starting point and a shape to work against. And by understanding a system, you create alignment. 
So that's that's how I see it. Like for example, successful creativity requires a certain traction for it to be sort of universally accepted. And what I mean by that is you can go create something that someone's never seen before, but if there's no anchor point, then it just flies over people's heads, right? Yeah. So yes, you are being creative, but I don't necessarily see creativity as that. And I mean, this this is something that, that's up for debate, right? Like maybe you create something or a new style tomorrow that slowly takes time to build up. And by, you know, year five, okay, this is like full-blown acceptance. Okay, so there's a couple of different words being used here that describe the same thing. One is system. And then another word this author uses is limitations or a shape, right? And I also think of it as context. And so people might not recognize creativity as creativity for a number of different reasons. One, like you said, is that they might not have the context to understand it as creativity. Also, it could be that you and that person aren't aligned in the same way. You don't see the system with, within the same boundaries, to kind of use that box metaphor. Mm -hmm. And so what's creative to one person isn't creative to another because it's either, you know, in relation to a completely different box or it's still within that other person's box, you know, kind of that um, you have to begin by having a shared understanding. Yeah. And I, and I really like this quote uh, that was also contained within the piece. Creativity often begins with accidents that end up showing a new possibility or reveal that violating a particular rule isn't as harmful as expected. Mm. So that's one thing you you see a lot is that because something's so ingrained in a process, people just accept it as the norm rather than rethinking how can I work within this and, and actually try to dismantle it and rebuild it, right? And a, a big reason why I thought this was so interesting was that a lot of times people look at this this sort of problem solving slash creative aspect of of their job and it can seem like it's very challenging. But I think once you put it through a system, which in many ways it goes it's contradictory to what a lot of people think creativity is. They don't think creativity is a system, right? Mm -hmm. But I think when you run it through a framework and a system, it actually reveals itself in, in terms of what it really is. Well, creativity isn't the system, though. Creativity isn't the system, but it thrives within the system. But you have to think about it. Cre creativity requires a system in order to exist. Correct. Is what I would say. And I think a lot of people might look at it and think, actually, creativity should be unhinged. Well, Do you know what I mean? Okay. Without, like, yeah, I think that's yes. the very superficial way of looking yeah, at yeah. creativity. No, totally. I get how people think of that. But even... Those people who think of creativity as unhinged, free, it's still in relation to something. They just haven't necessarily articulated what. And understood that, yes, you actually need this to fall yeah. within something. Like even for themselves, if they perceive as creativity as being free, they're already somehow subconsciously positioning it as free compared to this constraint. But maybe they haven't articulated this is the constraint. Yeah. Like an example that I would use, like a tangible example is what are topics that we want to write about, mm. right? And for me, the thought process, and I'll, I'll kind of walk you through my thought process is what's something that I'm personally interested in? Like, what am I interested in or what are we interested in? What are things of current relevance? And does that overlap lead us down a certain path, mm -hmm. right? And I, that's our way of approaching like what to write about or what to 
what kind of story to tell. And oftentimes it's pretty successful when you kind of run it through that. And the reason why I asked that question in the beginning in regards to think outside the box, I actually don't really believe it in terms of that being the way to tackle a problem. Mm. I think the better way of looking is like, what is the box, right? Yeah. So once you define the box, then you know what to do. Or, you know, either way, like this is something kind of borrowed from the world of development, like uh, sandboxes, right? Yeah. Like something that you can play within. Yeah. And like defining your sandbox in actuality is a much better way of approaching a problem because you've drawn up the restrictions and this and the solution needs to exist within this area. Yeah. I mean, when we talk about metaphors, I guess things get hairy because people interpret metaphors differently, which is why they are both great poetic devices and confusing. When I think about the phrase, think outside the box, I think what I was trying to say is don't let your thoughts always go along the same grooves. Okay, so I agree. You know, you have to define what the box is and that the playing in the sandbox is a better metaphor, I think, because it would be encouraging someone, you know, this is the sandbox and every day you make a dome in the sandbox and that's what you do. Mm -hmm. But there's all this sand and you can make anything. You know, it's still the same sandbox, but you could make a castle and dragons and yeah. turrets and stuff. Turrets. Yeah. That's a weird reference. I mean, there's not many chances I'm going to get to say dragons, castles, and turrets on this podcast. Yeah. I actually do have an example. And I know I don't talk a lot about the work I do, but outside of Macon. This is quite exciting for me. Uh, so the agency I work for, Intertrend is helping organize a show, Couriers of Hope, and it's part of a new initiative, Port City Creative Guild. And a lot of the big creative decisions came about kind of by accident. I say kind of because obviously there was intention, like we had to make decisions, so they didn't just like fall in our lap. But at the same time, they weren't all planned from the beginning. Like for this exhibit, it was not like this beautifully coherent plan on day one, we kind of stumbled into a lot of different decisions we made, starting with like the format of the art. We had this brief essentially that we wanted to do small scale affordable art and wanted to come up with some kind of constraint that all the artists could follow, wound up landing on envelopes as being the canvas mm -hmm. for that. And that was by chance, essentially, we had a constraint and we brainstormed around that. And that was where we wound up being. And then along the way, we also thought about, you know, for our mission of encouraging our appreciation, who can we encourage to appreciate art beyond just like artists and art collectors? And again, and through a session of like ideas on that, we came up with working um, in collaboration with teachers to reach high school students. I just think it's really interesting at this point where the project is almost launching to look back and see the route we came and how it wasn't like by a playbook, essentially. Yeah, because that's the thing is that you you knew what the restrictions were and then you knew that anything could happen within those yeah. things, good or bad. Like some things might happen, you know, maybe maybe, maybe whatever reason the envelopes you were going to use were like special ones and they got destroyed. Yeah. Then you would know how to 
navigate because you know that you need a common medium. Yeah. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, on the subject of creativity, I feel like we did go through this creative process that the article you picked talks about, you know, that we had an understanding of the system and constraint, and then we looked for something surprising. There was part of this article that you wanted to talk about that was in relation to work, not having a job. <laughs> I mean, it was kind of a joke. I read it and then I commented to Eugene that the conclusion is a quote from an individual who I don't know. I also don't know how to pronounce this last name. Traversky. He's a very famous like economist. Oh. Wikipedia says mathematical psychologist. Oh, sorry. He's like it's a... Fine. Anyway, economist, mathematical psychologist. Behavioral psychologist or something like that. His name is Amos Tversky. Yeah. And the quote is that the secret to doing good work is being a little unemployed. So you always have hours in the day to waste as you wish. I don't know if this is part of the quote yeah. or not, but the author says during that wasted time, you'll likely have your best, most creative ideas. That's something I've struggled with a lot is solving things in a short period of time and i, I mean that, that goes with the same with everything but i feel there's an exponential rise in the ability to solve something if you give me four hours to solve something it won't be that good but if you give me like a day and a half actually that extra day is exponentially more impactful yeah versus you know if you give me a week i don't I necessarily think you'll get better work out of a week but Definitely having time to think about something, letting something marinate is actually so critical. It's so important. I believe this way more than I did when I was younger. I think when I was younger, I was like, oh, I can make good work quick. Do you think it's because the complexity has changed? Like your Possibly. problems are more complex now. I mean, that's a very nice way to put that I have more complex things in front of me. Well, it's just like by virtue of like, as you grow through your career, <laughs> you're going to have more, more things to handle, right? So it could be that. I also think it's just that I was going to say that I think it's about how our brain behaves to the constraint of time. And so we are trained to just do the quickest solution that we know works because we know we have a time constraint, even if we're trying not to. Like in four hours, you might be telling yourself like, OK, let's, you know, try to jutes jump out of the system. But you only have four hours. So your brain is going to go most naturally towards the most tried and true solutions. Mm -hmm. And somehow. Yeah, actually, that's a great point. Yeah. A day and a half. Your brain's like, oh, it, it, like relaxes a little bit and says, how about this instead? I mean, within my creative process, the one thing that I have found to be really helpful is laying out scenarios and options that don't necessarily need to be these compartments. So you can have five options and the end result could be a bit of option two and three with a sprinkle of option five. Mm -hmm. And that, that to me has been the most rewarding because in theory, if you understand the process, each of those five options will in some way touch upon the desired end result. So what you're doing is just picking the best, like an hybridization of, of everything to create yeah. one final solution. Yeah, no. I would agree. And you know, it's... This is something that has helped me get through. I mean, everyone has these quote unquote creative blocks, like whether it's writing or whatnot. And not being precious to even the initial idea has been really helpful to just like, just, you know, call it a brain dump or whatever. Just like put out anything and everything and don't be worried if it's going to be dumb or stupid because yeah. at the very least, 
that will enable you to at least move forward because you know it's not a good idea. Because that's another thing too is I'm making this motion. It's like <laughs> opening and closing doors, right? You, you're you walking down a hallway and you might open a few doors that are relevant, some are not relevant. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. There's nothing that you just said that I don't also practice essentially like what you're talking about combining elements of ideas i frequently use that in terms of writing i always do the brain dump trick i just you know a very concrete example for the briefing intros i am a delinquent i usually write them about an hour before they're due I don't know no about respect you. i'm sorry sorry nate nate does our um briefings and i'm always like nate i'll give it to you in an hour and then start writing. Anyway, the way I do those is I'll just write a bunch of sentences about what happened to me that day first, and then I'll pick the one that's most interesting. And I'll write about that for mm -hmm. another 100 words and then be like, oh, OK, this is where this is going and then delete it and then like start over. Just despite you having a grasp on how the process works, is there anything within that process that as you grow more experienced, you worry about? Like, do you think your ability to solve problems might in fact be capped only because of that previously uh, mentioned thing where like when you approach a problem, you're, you're naturally working on things that already have proven to be successful. Yeah, I'm thinking about that. Because I think that. that that's something I think about too is, man. Am I just repeating myself? Am I just repeating myself? Yeah. I mean, I don't have time for existential crisis, mostly. I... Actually, in the creative process, I worry about how I am teaching other people to be creative. And I don't want to negatively impact the way they are creative. And I also want to be able to like stay open-minded to other people's solutions rather than shutting them out of my own creative yeah. process. No. In terms of when I'm on my own doing creative projects, I just feel like I'm not incentivized enough on my own, which may be a good thing. Maybe that's the whole like wasted time element of the Amos Tversky quote. Like I just don't get my own things done at all at the pace that I get other work done. Yeah. There's definitely a middle ground. Yeah. Right. There there is one thing that I've already started to partially address in terms of what happens when you get stuck or you do end up just repeating the same solutions is trying to be deliberate about finding different areas of potential interest right we talked about this in, in a previous podcast about just like looking at different industries and how other people solve problems i think that's been a nice way for me to just like stay motivated and we're not saying anything new or revelational, but generally speaking, people get excited about people being excited. Yeah. So finding people that are equally passionate or passionate about something that you never thought someone could be passionate about, I think actually is a great way to unlock or unhinge yourself. I do have actually a last question for you that we kind of didn't address very much. But the first step in the three-step creative process in this article says gain a deep understanding of a particular system and its rules. And I feel like we often talk about the upsides of actually being an amateur or being an outsider to a subject. Do you see a contradiction? In terms of being an amateur, you mean? Between 
advocating for being an amateur and an outsider and this initial step of creativity oh, yeah. gaining a deep understanding of a system well, and its rules. A- amateurs generally have no ego, right? Which is kind of what we champion, like not not being like, oh man, it has to be this good. I don't know. I, I th- There's never going to be this clear cut path towards a solution. But I think one thing that experience does provide you is a checklist of things to be conscious of. And I think ego is one thing that I recognize a lot. Like I look at that and be like, oh man, you should probably check yourself or be conscious of of getting big headed or whatever. Right. Yeah. But when I, this first step, I interpreted as not just about personality, but about particular subject material. Let's say you wanted to make a graphic novel. So step one is read a bunch of graphic novels mm-hmm. so that you know what's out there, what the so-called system is, you know, what the published material looks like. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. And then you can kind of pick and choose what the gaps are. It's like being a knowledgeable amateur. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. There's definitely some work you have to put in regardless. Yeah. Right. I mean, this is one thing that I've looked at and, you know, the world of F&B is, is very, like the world of restaurants is very regimented in mm-hmm. terms of the process, right? And I've, I've always been curious how one could go in and change something there. Because the one thing is like, on the flip side, what would, an, what would a person who has traditionally worked as a chef, how would they approach editorial? Yeah. And I think they both have, no one, no one, everyone will have a different way to achieve the end result. But then the process in which they achieve it is probably the most interesting thing. But you know what's interesting is that when you raise the example of restaurants, I immediately thought that's not traditionally an industry that would be friendly to someone not expert stepping in to say, let's yeah. do things this way. Yeah. But then there's so many other variables that, could allow you allow you the opportunity to be successful so it's like how do you integrate how to manage a ton of information mm-hmm. right uh or how does your travel experience help influence like you know how would you approach something so i i think things are always ripe for disruption if you allow for it it's when you have a such a tight what a silicon valley thing to say it's such like a when you have a tightly regulated thing that's when it's really hard to change things right you think that's a good place to close? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think there's anything else to add to that, really. I no? mean, if anyone has any questions on how to manage this, I, don't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> say I have like a solution to everything, <laughs> but I think that that's one of the most important things about developing frameworks or systems is that it makes things repeatable. And we're not artists per se. Like, you and I aren't artists, right? Yeah. We're like no. creatives that basically- No, I would not describe myself that way. Yeah, we're basically providing creative solutions on demand. We're creatives who talk a lot. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, yes, I agree with Eugene about questions. It's just funny because just today, someone asked me a question and I said, that's the question I wanted to ask you. So that might happen. Listeners, mm. if you ask me a question, uh, could just be asking you back. Yeah. All right. Good place to wrap things up. If you are interested in hearing more about making, reading, and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at makin.com. M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via patreon.com slash makin.
Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Sharice at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.